Jones. I'm the lead of our hospitality team here at Branches and filling in for Tom while he's still out on his trip to Russia. So they're returning, I believe it's tomorrow. So keep him, Joe, and Ashley in your prayers on their, on their return home. Uh, before we get started, I'm going to invite Jack, right as he sits down, to come right back up and uh, talk a little bit about a ministry he's part of. Good morning. Uh, you, if you've been here very long, you know that I'm involved in uh, Cairo's prison ministry at Indiana State Prison um, our, in Michigan City. Our next weekend retreat is mid-October from, uh, I believe, the 18th to the 21st. Uh, we will be letting you know from time to time uh, many ways in which you can support that weekend uh, if you'd like, including baking chocolate chip cookies um, but, uh, and mostly prayer. But if you would think that God is calling you to actually go into the prison for those four days uh, and be part of our team then the time to deal with that is right now and uh, in the next two Sundays because our team meeting is August 18th. And we meet uh, several times before the actual retreat. So any of you who who would like or think that God's calling you, uh, I suggest you come to one of those meetings, uh, meet those who, who will be going in, and see how that feels uh, God is pretty good at, about letting you know when, when you're being called. I don't have to persuade you, um, but if you're feeling like a kick in the pants, uh, I'd be happy to catch you. And, and so if that is something you are uh, thinking God may be calling you to, you'd like to come out to a meeting and see uh, what the next step might be, uh, uh, come and contact me after the service. Uh, this week or next, and and we can discuss what the what the obligations and the commitments are, and uh, what it might mean to you to become part of our team. Thank you, Jack. Um, so one final announcement I wanted to highlight was: in two weeks, we've got our barbecue, the annual barbecue we do at the church. It's going to be right back here outside. Um, I really encourage you guys to come. It's August 19th. It's always a lot of fun. Free food, plenty of it, so you don't have to bring anything. Everything is going to be provided. There's a giant slip and slide, which is a lot of fun for kids and even adults that still think they're kids. Um, And lots of lawn games. And maybe since Tom's out, we could surprise him with like a big dunk tank. I don't know. Maybe encourage people to get baptized by the father, son, and a four-seam fastball. Um, So come to that. That's August 19th. So today's message is called Godly Vision. Now, we're not going to talk today about whether or not God wears glasses. Um, We know he's got better vision than ours. Uh, But what we're going to discuss today is that godly vision is simply a plan of God's. And to help walk through this message today, um, we're going to introduce a definition and I want to be honest that it's, I'm not claiming that this is the biblical definition, but it's a definition we can use surrounded by some biblical truths to help us understand what a godly vision is. And before I jump into the message here, I'm just going to uh, open in prayer here. So just bow your heads with me. 
Father, I just pray that you just open the hearts of the people here today to hear your word. And just that what comes from my mouth is, is just a relaying a message from you, Father, for us here. Just, just may this be a seed that lands in the, the tilt soil of the people's hearts listening to this today. And uh, just encourage us that, that you love us and are calling us into a relationship with you, Father. Amen. Okay, so the definition I want to start with today is this. A godly vision is a plan of God's that from a human perspective seems impossible to accomplish. Now, although there is much truth to this, I'm afraid that we could look at this and find examples from our own lives and say, you know, I've done things that seem impossible. Well, maybe those were visions of God. I'm sure we can all think of something that we've done that seemed impossible. Just think about it for a moment. Maybe you fixed up an engine that wouldn't run or put together a kid's toy that had over a thousand pieces and only had one left over. Or maybe it was a college degree you achieved, a professional certificate, or maybe you've started your own business. Now, I'm not here to proclaim that God was not involved with these things but, or that they, or God was not using these things as part of his plan for your life. But that's just it. You were able to accomplish these things. And even somebody who does not know God or is not in a relationship with God is able to accomplish these things. So what I want us to think about today is something much bigger than these things. So I think we need to revisit this definition and add to it. A godly vision is a plan of God's that from a human perspective seems impossible to accomplish and requires a competency that exceeds our human capacity and or defies logical reasoning. And to help support this, I want to look at an example in Exodus chapter 3 where God speaks to Moses in the burning bush on Mount Sinai. Now before this happened, I'm sure many of us know the story of Moses. He was a Hebrew or an Israelite and he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt. And later on in Moses' life, he ends up killing an Egyptian after seeing how harshly he was treating one of the Hebrew slaves. And after Moses had heard that the rumor was spreading about him having murdered this Egyptian, he was feared for his life and he fled Egypt and lived where he was working as a shepherd. Now during this time as a shepherd, away from Egypt, Moses encounters God through the burning bush. And God says to him in Exodus 3, verse 9 through 10, Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. So Moses jumped up, put on his running sandals, grabbed his shepherd's staff, and ran as fast as he could to Egypt with a flock of sheep wagging their tails behind them. Well, that's not exactly what Moses did in response to this God's calling. But before we read on, let's add to this illustration to help create some perspective about what God was actually calling Moses to do when he said, lead my people out of Egypt. So we know Moses was raised in Egypt. So I would argue that he knew about how many Egyptians lived in the community he was raised. And he knew that the Hebrews were slaves to them. So I'd argue he probably knew about how many Hebrew slaves there were during the time. So I think we can assume for this argument that Moses knew about how many people God was calling him to save, right? And we can actually find this number. And in Exodus 12, after God sends the 10 plagues, the Pharaoh tells Moses to leave with his people. And in verse 37, 
That night, the people of Israel left Ramses and started for Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men, plus all women and children. So if we assume that at that point in time, there were about the same population distribution, equal number of men and women, then we could assume that there were about 1.2 million people that God was asking Moses to lead, and that is not including the children. So imagine for a moment that God asks you to go to a city about the size, twice the size of Indianapolis and say, come with me, everybody, to the promised land. How many of you would just jump up and do it without asking any questions or being concerned? Well, don't worry. That's exactly what Moses did too. And we can read this in Exodus. I'm going to go through a few verses here. Um, So after God tells Moses in verse 10, now go, Moses responds to him in verse 11. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people out of Egypt? God says to him, I will be with you. Then verse 13, Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said, I am who I am, now go. And in verses I'm not going to spend time reading, God continues to clearly draw out the plans that he has in order to make this happen. And basically he's telling Moses, dude, I'm talking to you from a burning bush. Just go. In chapter 4, we read on that Moses protested again. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say, the Lord never appeared to you? So God gives Moses a couple tools that he could use to show the Israelites that God was in fact with them, like turning his uh, stick into a snake and covering his hand with leprosy and healing it again. In verse 10, we read on, but Moses pleaded with the Lord. Oh Lord, I'm not good with words. I never have been and I'm not now, even though you have spoken to me. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Then the Lord said, Now go, I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. Verse 13, but Moses pleaded again, Lord, please send anyone else. Then the Lord became angry with Moses. All right, he said, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he speaks well. And look, he's on his way to meet you now. He will be delighted to see you. So Moses and his brother Aaron finally head to Egypt to carry out God's vision. And we could continue with the story of parting the Red Sea, the plagues, wandering in the wilderness, and all the things that happened in preparation for them entering the promised land. But the point of the story for this message is that the vision that God shared with Moses was so big, so impossible compared to what Moses was capable of doing, so incredibly illogical to think that one man could rescue approximately one and a half million slaves from their owners. It was so out there that Moses tried to reason with God five times to find someone else to do it. See, Moses saw the human flaw in God's logic. And we know how the story ends. We see that because of Moses' trust in God and obedience to God, despite how humanly impossible and humanly illogical God's vision was, in the end, God did not fail. There's a passage in Joshua 21, verse 45 elaborates on this. It says, not a single one of all the good promises the Lord has given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Everything he had spoken came true. Now this message is in reference to the Israelites when they finally entered the promised land that God promised them through Abraham. But this verse is bigger than that. 
is not just related to that current situation. Now, this statement is true for all the promises that God has given. It is true for the promise of our Savior and his Son, Jesus Christ, that for anyone who believes in him, that through their faith alone will be saved by the grace and love of God. He promises that, that even though we are dead in our sins and our trespasses, that we are made alive with Christ Jesus and that we will be seated with him in heaven because of our faith. Not a single one of his promises will be left unfulfilled. This example of Moses is evidence that any vision of God, no matter how humanly impossible or illogical it may seem, will be completed. And we should ask ourselves, why is it that a godly vision needs to be humanly impossible and illogical and require a competency that exceeds our human capabilities? Remember when I asked you about something that you've done that seemed impossible? Well, think of how that accomplishment made you feel. Well, the motivation behind a godly vision is not so that we can be lifted up, but so that God can be glorified. And we can read in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Then you, Moses, will tell him, Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. You see, in this passage, God reveals the purpose behind his vision. It's so that God's people can worship him. When something is so big, that only God could possibly do it, like parting the Red Sea, for example, how foolish would it be for us to take any bit of credit for it? We can only give the glory to God and worship him. Another example that answers this question is a story about a man named Gideon, which is found in the book of Judges. Now, Gideon was a farmer. He was really a nobody. And he was summoned by the Lord to lead the Israelites to victory over the enemy and become the judge over Israel. Now, this was during a time when judges had ruled over Israel. So the Lord is preparing Gideon for battle, and Gideon comes forward with 32,000 soldiers to take on the enemy. And we read in Judges uh, chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they save themselves by their own strength. In verse 7, we continue, we read, The Lord told Gideon, With these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. Now, if we read on, we see that these 300 men defeated an army of about 135,000 enemy soldiers. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was one of those 32,000 soldiers of Gideon's going up against an army of 135,000, I think I would have been given glory to God, even given those odds. But that was not possible enough for God's vision. And with those 300 men, God defeated the enemy of about 135,000 soldiers so that he would be given the glory alone. So I think we need to revisit our definition yet again and add to it. A godly vision is a plan of God's that from a human perspective seems impossible to accomplish and requires a competency that exceeds our human capacity and or defies logical reasoning with the purpose of glorifying God. Does this make sense so far? So I think the most important question we can ask right now, 
given this definition, is how do we know if a vision is a godly vision with the purpose of glorifying God? Whether we are given that vision or we are witnesses to a vision through someone else. Say, for example, the pastor of your church stands up and says, hey, church, I believe God wants us or wants you to fill in the blank. Whatever that is, although that statement may seem impossible and beyond our human abilities, how can we be sure it will glorify God? Well, first and foremost, we need to know God. We need to read and study his word. We need to spend time in prayer. We need to be devoted in worship to God. And there's more to it than this, but these three things will lead to an in-depth relationship with the Lord, with those around us, and reveal who he is to us. And when we do these things, we can test the visions of God against his word. And a couple verses that speak to this about testing visions of God's word are this. The first one is Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 4. Suppose there are prophets among you, or those who dream dreams about the future, and they promise you signs or miracles, and the predicted signs or miracles occur. If they then say, come, let us worship other gods, gods you have not known before, do not listen to them. The Lord... Page is stuck, sorry. The Lord, your God, is testing you to see if you truly love him with all your heart and soul. Serve only the Lord your God and fear him alone. Obey his commands, listen to his voice, and cling to him. And the second verse about this is in 1 John 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe anyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit that they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. So we need to test the things in this world to discern what is from God and what is against God. So I ask you, how can you know if someone is asking you to worship another God if you do not know who the true God is? Or how can you test someone to see if their spirit comes from God if you do not know who the true God is? This is an importance of reading and studying the Bible comes into play. And there are a couple verses that highlight the importance of this truth. The first one is Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. My child, listen to what I say and treasure my commands. Tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would for silver. Seek them like hidden treasures. Then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord and you will gain knowledge of God. Another verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So if God is using all of scripture to equip his people to do every good work, Shouldn't we be committed to studying it? And if we choose not to study the Bible, what does this say about your commitment to being a follower of Jesus? What does it say about the type of Christ follower that you are striving to become? And this is a question that Tom has been asking us for the last eight weeks or so in his previous message series about the kingdom principles. What kind of Christ follower are you trying to become? 
It is extremely important for us to spend time in the word to gain knowledge of God, to be able to test what is from God and what is against God, and to be equipped to do every good work. This passage teaches us that the Bible is all we need to do every good work, the work that God calls us to do. God has handed you the tool that you need to do every good work. What are you going to do with it? These truths don't just apply to testing a godly vision. These truths apply to everything in which we encounter in the world around us. Shame on us if we are led astray by something or someone claiming to follow God when God has given us the tools of discernment and of wisdom. It is up to us to decide to use these tools, and we do that by picking up the Bible and studying his word, by praying and worshiping him. Now, prayer and worship are vitally important when it comes to growing in a relationship with God. But the more you know God through reading and studying his word, the more your heart will desire to speak to God in prayer, and the more your heart will desire to pour out to God and worship to him. So the truth is, we need to know God in order to recognize if a vision is coming from him and if it will glorify him. And we do this not just by reading the word, but by studying it. Now finally, let's discuss how we are to respond to a godly vision. When we have tested a vision against the word of God and confirmed that it is a godly vision, we are to act. When God asked Moses to return to Egypt and free his people from slavery, what did Moses do? Well, he went to Egypt. Yes, it took some convincing and coercing from God to get him on the road, but he went. We don't read in the Bible about a time period when God asked Moses to go and when he finally decided to pick up and leave. No, after God finishes speaking to Moses through that burning bush, Moses went back home, packed up his family, and they went to Egypt. I want you to think about the things in your life that take you out of a position of acting on one of God's visions. Moses didn't say, yes, Lord, I'll go, but just a minute. Just wait till this work is completed or I'm at a good stopping point. He didn't say, yes, Lord, but I must wait until my children are old enough. He didn't say, yes, Lord, but I'm going to have to wait until I've thoroughly planned out the next five years of this journey and know what will happen next. And he didn't say, yes, Lord, but I'm going to have to wait till I have enough money stored up in case this plan of yours falls apart. Moses trusted completely in God and just picked up what he had and he left. And if we look back at the story of Gideon, we see the exact same response from him, immediate action. But we need to keep in mind that taking immediate action may require continual effort on our part. Take reading the Bible, for example. If it's not already a part of your daily life, take immediate action. It will be a continual effort at first, but as you continue you will grow and desire to read his word. You will begin to desire to pray to God, desire to worship God, desire to serve him however and wherever you are. It will take continual effort until these things take over you and draw you into his word and into a deeper fellowship with the Lord. So when we have tested a vision against the word of God and confirmed that it is a godly vision intended to glorify him, we are to take immediate action. Now, I think there's a final component to our definition that we've overlooked today. So I want to revisit that. 
And that final component is this. A godly vision is a plan of God's that from a human perspective seems impossible to accomplish and requires a competency that exceeds our human capacity and defies logical reasoning with the purpose of glorifying God, no matter how big or how small. What do I mean by this? Well, up to this point, I'm sure you've been thinking about big godly visions, but not all godly visions are big. I can share with you several stories in the Bible where God calls somebody into something much smaller than this. But what they were called to do would fit our definition that we've created. I'm not going to spend time reading about them, but you can read about the stories of Deborah, Shamgar, Samson, Ruth, Jonah, John the Baptist, Ananias, among many, many others. And you would begin to appreciate that sometimes God calls people for something really big, like he did with Moses, but sometimes God calls people for service to support a godly vision instead. Like the one and a half million Israelites, or like Ananias, who restored Paul's vision. And you can read about that story in Acts chapter 9. So I would argue that when we think about the size of a godly vision, it's just a matter of perspective. We have to remember whose vision we are talking about. We're talking about the infinite God, creator of all things, the God that created everything out of nothing. So maybe the visions that we see as big are only because we can see the starting point and the ending point to those visions. But maybe God sees even these visions as small visions. Maybe Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, which seems like such a big vision to us, was actually a small vision. Something that was a part of something much greater and bigger godly vision. Now let me explain this by reading a verse where Jesus states a very important truth to the Jewish leader. Jewish religious leaders at his time. And in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says to the Jewish religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. These religious leaders were searching the scriptures of the Old Testament writings for eternal life. They were following the Old Covenant. But this verse is telling us that there is a much bigger godly vision at work. What Moses did was, in fact, all part of a much bigger godly vision. And that bigger godly vision was the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Everything in the Bible points to the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ. And I think about what Rob had shared with us this morning during communion, that we are to focus our attention on Jesus Christ. And from this verse, we can understand that everything in the Bible is focusing its attention on what Jesus Christ did for us. So when we look around at our lives and think that we're not playing a part in a big godly vision, because we can't see or identify a specific end or a task or objective that we are marching towards, when we feel like our lives are small and insignificant because we cannot see the effect of our cause, when we are sitting around thinking, praying, asking God for a special assignment, for a purpose to our lives, we need to stop trying to find ways to make us big. Instead, we need to focus on ways to glorify God in everything that we do. 
In the words of John the Baptist, Jesus must become greater and greater, and we must become less and less. Now, maybe someday God will call you for something big, to lead a multitude of people into a relationship with him by spreading the good news about his son, Jesus Christ. Or maybe God will call upon you to do something small. Or maybe you never realized that God called you to act because it was through your obedience to him, your continual effort. It became so natural to do so, just as it would taking your next breath. It was your instinct that drove you to obedience and be a part of a vision of his. Now, there's a quote from Oswald Chambers, a preacher in the early 1900s that I want to share that I think ties into this really well. He says, Oswald says, I must realize that my obedience in even the smallest detail of life has all the omnipotent power of the grace of God behind it. If I will do my duty, not for duty's sake, but because I believe God is engineering my circumstances, then at the very point of my obedience, all the magnificent grace of God is mine through the glorious atonement by the cross of Christ. If we believe, and we must, that God has engineered our circumstances, then the focus of our attention must not be on the role with which we play in God's vision. We will play whatever role God calls us, wherever and whenever that may be. It is not for us to understand that we would feel good about what we have done in this life. It is about being obedient to God and giving all the glory to him alone. And this is not an invitation for us to become complacent Christians. This is not an invitation to sit back, relax, and wait for God to tap you on the shoulder. No, this is an invitation for immediate action. That is how we are to respond to a godly vision. And in closing, I leave you with this. I want to read a passage in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17 where Paul is just writing to the people of the church of Ephesus. And he says this, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after, the, after battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these things, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul is telling us that we need to be prepared for a battle that is taking place then and now, a spiritual battle between good and evil. In this long list of things that Paul talks about putting on, everything is something that we can use to defend ourselves from evil. But there is one thing in this list that Paul says we are to take into battle because it can also inflict damage to the enemy. And that is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. He doesn't want us to go to the store and pick up the heaviest Bible so that we can throw it at the enemy and cause damage. 
He wants us to pick up the word of God and study it without studying the word of God. We are just a soldier on the battlefield without a weapon. That's just crazy. That's suicide. We need to act now. If it is not already a part of your daily life, pick up your Bible. And if you don't have one, download one on your phone or pick one up at the Welcome Center. We've got a box full of them. And take it home and begin to study so that you can grow in your knowledge of God and be prepared and equipped to do every good work for his glory. Amen. I'll invite the worship team to come back up and um, I'll close in prayer here. And I want to remind everyone that this is a, a time where you can come forward and, and ask God for, for prayer for anything that's going on in your life, whatever it may be. Uh, there's going to be people in these front rows that would be happy to pray for you about whatever it might be. But I want to encourage you that if reading the Bible is not already a part of your daily lives, there is so much value. God tells us to seek it like hidden treasures. And that if you have any doubt in your mind about what God has planned for you, if you've been wrestling with those things about what am I supposed to be doing? I'm not doing enough. Well, it's in our humility and our poverty that we cannot be useful for God, that he is going to come to us and reach us and that we are going to be a tool for him. And we start by reading his word. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word today. Father, I thank you for the people that are here today. Father, I think it's on our hearts, all of us, to want to grow deeper and closer to you, to know you more. Father, I pray that if there's people in here who do not know who you are, that have been claiming for years that they go to church and they do what they think they're supposed to do, but they really don't know you, that you just stir up in their heart the desire to take that next step, whatever it is, to move in them the will to know more of you, Father, so that we can be prepared to do every good work that you have called for us and prepared for us to do, whether it be big or small, that our obedience to you, no matter how big or small, it just becomes such an instinctual part of our lives, just like breathing. Father, I ask these things in your son's name. Amen.